according to an article in the U.S. News and World Report, the aging of the American population has been a factor, they're saying, is going to affect every corner of society, it already is. In the last 25 years, the 50 and older group grew by 20%, while those under the age of 50 grew by 4%. Estimates are suggesting that the median age of our nation, which was 33 years of age in 1989, in the next decade or so is going to reach the mid-40s. One journalist put it this way, that this shifting in age is to be considered one of the most significant culture-shaping forces that we have ever seen. And frankly, that can be a good thing, can it? We're studying a passage that tends to endorse those in the congregation that are older. I mean, by the time you reach 50, you know, most adults have recognized there's more to life than a car and a closet full of clothes and cash and maybe a credit card with a high limit. That used to be a good thing, right? Now, by the time you've reached 50, you've discovered that relationships mattered more than they used to. In fact, you find yourselves at restaurants, and I guess I've reached that point, you know, um, but you, you, you look at families with little kids at the table and you start conversations with them, uninvited. And uh, I remember as a parent thinking, why are, they t- why are these old people talking to us? And now I know. I'm, I'm wondering, do they know the treasure they've got at their table? What a delight. When you're, you know, when you're, when you're young, you want time to fly. I mean, just please. And get on with, with things. I want to graduate. I want to get my driver's license. I want to go to college. I want to get a job. I want to buy the first house. I want to land the, Whatever. When you get older, you don't want time to fly. You've realized it did, right? And you want it to slow down. That's why you love taking pictures and looking at pictures because it's like, okay, that moment can't get away completely. See, by the time you've reached 50 and up, you now understand that your days are numbered. <laughs> You're thinking, this is a depressing sermon here. <laughs> Listen, let me, let me, I'll turn the boat around in a minute here, but I want you to understand that from God's perspective, age is a good thing. In fact, numbering your days brings a level of discernment. The psalmist wrote, oh God, teach me to number my days. Young people don't, older people do. Give me that kind of perspective on life. Teach me to number my days so that I may present to you a heart of wisdom. Something related to wisdom and knowing time is flying by. That kind of wisdom and perspective is needed in the church today. In fact, like our culture around us, the older believers can become the most significant culture-shaping force in the body of Christ. If you've been with us, you know Paul told a young pastor by the name of Titus to go around the island of Crete and put the churches into good order, make sure they're well-led and well-fed. He was to find and ordain elders to shoulder the responsibility of spiritual leadership and then immediately goes in and telling older men and older women how they can make a difference in the lives of those who are younger. And he sort of tasks them with modeling it. The older men were to model maturity, dignity, remember? They were to be healthy in faith 
and in love and then pursue it with all perseverance. He tells older women to to model holy living, reverence, as a sacred duty with a sweet demeanor. Now he's going to shift and he's going to tell the older women, interestingly enough, that it is their distinct responsibility in a hands-on way to mentor younger women. In other words, then older women are not to regard their lives as less valuable as they grow older, but more valuable. They literally represent a culture-shaping force within the body of Christ. Let's pick up our study where we left off at Titus chapter 2 and and at verse 3, where Paul is challenging the older women to train the younger wives and mothers to love their husbands and children. Now keep in mind that Paul is dealing with the normal patterns of life experienced by the majority of people, not only in the world but in the church. Those who choose to marry, those who have children or choose to adopt children. Let me just kind of insert this quickly here. We know from 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul has a very high view of singleness. In fact, he didn't consider singles less than complete in Christ. In fact, if because you are single, you are somehow incomplete in in your relationship and life uh, in pursuing the will of God, then Jesus Christ was incomplete as well, for he never married. Paul will stress in other passages the unique responsibilities and focus for Christian service for those who are single. In other words, what I'll say, if you put the body of Scripture together, married, unmarried, children, no children, divorced, widowed, whatever, make the maximum opportunity of whatever state you're in for the glory of God. Don't waste it. Now what Paul does in his letters, and he'll do here to Titus, is he's going to deal with God's pattern for marriage and family, and this time he focuses on the woman. God's plan for motherhood and marriage is going to continually receive less and less appreciation from our culture as our culture moves away from God's design and it chooses its own depraved, self-gratifying, self-fulfilling desires. Frankly, we're seeing that marriage as an institution in our culture is actually fading away. Now, I remember growing up, pastors and evangelists would, would say, you know, the, the, the greatest danger to the institution of marriage is easy divorce. Well, we've lived long enough to know that it isn't necessarily true. It certainly didn't help, but it isn't true. The greater danger to the institution of marriage is that it virtually ceases to exist. Couples are now simply living together. According to one recently released analysis by the Pew Research, taken from the most recent U.S. Census, barely half of all adults in the United States are now married. And many more than that number are living together. To put that into perspective, in 1960, 72% of all adults in America were legally married. Today, only one out of two couples who are living together are married. Why? 
Well, for several reasons, you're probably way ahead of me. One, obviously, as we've already discussed, is the failure or perhaps the inability of young men who weren't raised by mature men, who were raised by men who refused to abandon adolescent behavior. They've never had it modeled. They don't know how to accept and, 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 and embrace the responsibilities and the rigors of married life. In fact, in one of my earlier messages, I mentioned that the National Academy of Sciences has already redefined the length of time for male adolescence. That period of time between the onset of puberty and adulthood, and they've redefined it for men to begin at age 12 and not end until age 30. Which has implications for the church and all of culture. One secular journalist put it this way, we are simply surrounded by grown-ups who will not leave childhood. But a greater reason, I think, for the lack of marital commitment in the 21st century is the moral digression of our culture. Couples are living together. They're, they're rapidly outpacing or outnumbering couples who are getting married. Of course they are. Why, why bother with a covenant and a commitment for life when you can have the physical benefits, the financial benefits of marriage and even a child or two without ever closing off all your other options. Why choose wed lock? One statistic from this same Pew Research Analysis revealed now, this is startling, that nearly five out of ten Americans, when asked, are saying that marriage as an institution is obsolete. But none of this really surprises us, does it? I mean, for somebody to say, yeah, marriage is obsolete. Well, that's not necessarily a surprise. We're, we're simply observing the natural effects of a culture which has resisted and now, over the last 40, 50 years, now has successfully banished the Bible from the public square. And when the Bible is exiled... What has also disappeared is any kind of stigma related to any kind of lifestyle or choice that the Bible refers to as sinful. It's just not a problem anymore to live with a guy or a girl you're not married to. There's no stigma related to that anymore. In fact, I've actually had a couple, several in my office who, who talk about with any embarrassment how it's not wrong for them to live together. I had one not too long ago tell me there was nothing wrong with it. And he sat there with his girlfriend telling me all the things that were right about it. It made sense financially. There were the benefits of getting to know each other before they married. And who was I to tell them they were living in sin? Which I did, by the way. In fact, before our meeting ended, the guy told me, look, I don't know what you have to think about it, but we have never felt closer to the Lord. And I said, enjoy that feeling while you can Because it'll one day be gone. One secular author, not a Bible commentary or pastor, but a secular author wrote that we are watching today what he called a tectonic shift in sensibilities within our culture. What's right is now wrong. And what's wrong is now right. Welcome to the island of Crete. This was their lifestyle. 
Older men were immature and self-centered, refusing to grow up and accepting the responsibilities of their age. Paul says through Titus, older women were gossiping drunkards. Speaks very bluntly to every age group. Younger men, we're going to find out in another session, are all about themselves. And younger women are abandoning their husbands and their children for their freedom. Welcome to the 21st century, right? Like Titus and these churches on the island of of Crete. I want you to think about it this way. I've said this before, but I want to continue to reform your vocabulary and your thinking. Don't think of us living in a post-Christian world. It is true, but I don't want you to think that way. I want you to think that you're living in a pre-Christian world. What that means is a couple of things. For one, when you go out there, they don't, they don't know what God you're talking about. You've got to define that God. They don't view the Bible any more sacred than the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Mormon. They consider Jesus' words like any other good man's words. He's just another prophet in a long line of other prophets. That's pre-Christian. So do you know what that means? That means this, this is the perfect time to be living with the gospel message. I mean, the light can really shine now. We are living in a phenomenal age when we can display the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kinds of relationships within the family at home and and, and in the church that, that mankind has abandoned but still desperately wants and knows intuitively in his heart That they're right because it's been stamped on his heart. The law of God has been, Paul wrote. We're living in a day now where the light can really shine. So we don't spend our time cursing the darkness. Look how dark it is out there. Great. The darker it is, the brighter one little light can be. And so Paul does reveal the depravity of the Cretan culture. He talks about it. Chapter 1. And then he gives his divinely inspired solution. Verse 4 informs us that a big part of God's solution for transforming lives was older women encouraging the young women. You notice that? Verse 4, so that, older women, here's how you're to live, reverent in your behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that, here's the purpose clause, so that they may encourage the young women to do a number of things. By the way, that word translated to encourage, that verb never appears anywhere else in the New Testament in that form. It literally means to bring young women to their senses, to train their senses, to train their pattern of thinking. One translator put it this way, to wise them up. You see, their culture had turned everything upside down. Now, go and turn everything right side up. And what Paul is going to do in these next few phrases, he's going to provide the curriculum for mentoring young wives and mothers. And he's going to give effectively seven attributes, or six, we'll pair them together. In fact, for the sake of outline, you might have a pencil or something, and you can circle what Paul, for the most part, delivers in the form of pairs. The first pair has to do with relationships within the family. 
They're to love their husbands and their children. The second pair in verse 5 has to do with their reputation in the world. First, their relationships in the family. Secondly, their reputation in the world. They're to be sensible and pure. And the third pair refers to their role in the home. Workers at home and kind. The final phrase in verse 5 basically provides this mindset and an ultimate motivation. Now, we're not going to get to all of that today. I'm sure that shocks you, but we're going to get to just maybe the first two pairs of attributes, all right? Now for the first pair, the model for the wife's relationship in the family. He writes in verse 4, so that they, that is the older women, may encourage, literally train the senses of the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. The word for love here is a compound word, first part philos, philia, phileo, which means to have affection. It is the love of befriending. It is, it is an emotional affection and commitment to another. It's the only time this particular compound word appears in the New Testament. And I was surprised to find it. I was surprised that this would be the word used. It means to befriend. That just kind of sounds odd, doesn't it? To show affection. How can you command affection? How can you command emotion? What Paul then is implying here is that love can be learned. In fact, you can so think and so live that emotions evidently, according to the command of God, are eventually corralled and governed by right thinking and not the other way around. And by the way, God does this to all of us often in the Bible, doesn't he? He commands emotion. He tells us to rejoice evermore. I don't feel like it. Doesn't matter. I'm to obey, and that should be my disposition, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. He commands us to respond to trials with a a settled, resolved acceptance of joy. I certainly don't feel like that, but I'm commanded to respond that way, James chapter 1. He commands us to give thanks, and then he adds that, in everything, for this is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. They're all commands that all involve emotions, which we might not have at the moment, but we obey the commands and our biblical actions pull along biblical emotions. You see, we happen to be living in a fallen culture and we're walking around in a fallen body and a fallen mind. That's turned everything the wrong way. It tells us that our actions should be the result of our emotions. However you feel, then act. That's what we're told, and we like that message. So we're going to live however we feel, and we're going to treat everybody else how we feel about everybody else. That's what our culture says, and that's what our flesh says. God reverses all of that. He says here through Paul, basically submit, train your senses that is act according to his commands and your emotions then follow. 
By the way, if you have young children, that's exactly how you're raising them. Get out of bed. It's time to go to school. I don't feel like it. Well, when did that matter? The bus will be here in 15 minutes. I want candy for breakfast. That's how I'm feeling. I don't care how you're feeling. You're not going to have that. But I'm 53. Remember my mother, bless her heart, I shared this with you, you old timers, about 15, 20 years ago. You know, I, I never did like vegetables. And uh, I know a lot of you were the same way. But that never mattered. It was never a matter of emotion or feeling. I didn't get a vote. And it took most of my life before my feelings began to change. You know, I still have to resist temptation. I... I between the second and the third hour, on one crutch, made it all the way around there, the little boy's room over here. It's the little one, the women have the big one. We have the little one over here. (laughs) And I came out, and a young man came up to me, literally, with a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. Would you like one? Let's see, what does the text say now about uh, that particular... (laughs) I had one, by the way, on the way, on the way back. I remember my wife had an activity, our kids, three kids, fourth one hadn't been born yet, and she had some, something to do, and I said, honey, don't worry about it, I'll, I'll take care of supper. I'm not really good in, 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 in the kitchen, and, and, um, but she made it easy for me. Pot of water, you boil it, this box, tuna helper, when it boils, pour it in. And so I did, waited for it to boil. And then I poured it in. As, as I'm pouring it in, I see going in these BB-sized, hard, shriveled-up green peas, which I have never in my life understood. And I thought, why did Betty Crocker put those peas in there? But now my kids will be watching me <laughs> at the table, too. But seconds later, those peas miraculously floated to the surface, and I could scoop them off. This was the providence of God in my life. But now I'm older. Now I'm older. I happen to feel differently about vegetables. I happen to, I happen to feel differently about fruit. I happen to feel differently about fiber. Let me tell you, I feel very differently about fiber. You know, everything I buy, I'm looking on the thing. How many, you know, grams of that stuff? Man, you, you got to get a little older to appreciate all of that. And that's what's happened. See, I see value in certain things now. And because of that, I act differently no matter how I feel. And I've retrained my feelings. The command of Paul for Titus is for women to act in such a way that they train themselves in obedience. And ultimately, it retrains their Feelings. Let me paraphrase the verse. Paul writes, Younger wives and mothers, allow yourselves to be trained to love by acting toward your husband and children with the affections of love. Now, I got to tell you this. This is especially profound. And, and all the more difficult. It's difficult. In fact, it's impossible apart from the Spirit of God to do what we just said 
Paul said to do. But especially for them and, and those in the Jewish community and for first culture. You see, you have to understand their traditions of marriage and, and parenting would make this command difficult. In America, let me illustrate it this way. We, in America, we learned as kids, and I don't know if they still teach it now, but this little rhyme. Say it with me if you know it. Johnny and Susan sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in a baby carriage. This is deep, I know, but you remember that, don't you? (laughs) Did you notice that? First comes love, then comes marriage. Not for them. First came marriage because it had been arranged. And they'd met each other maybe 12 months before the wedding. Then after marriage came love. Maybe that's why he says this here. Wives, learn to be a friend to your husband. I mean, you really don't know him. Learn to be his friend. Learn the affection of friendship. Philia. Marriages were arranged, betrothals set. In fact, I've met several couples from other nations, and and they still do it to this day around the world. In fact, the the, the predominant culture is the arrangement of marriage, not so much in the Western world. I got two daughters. I love the idea of an arranged marriage. Let me tell you, I'd love to arrange their marriages. (laughs) I met one couple from Africa not too long ago who were introduced to each other the day before their wedding. I met a couple, in fact, one of our deacons and his wife, originally from India, met each other before their marriage. They just celebrated, I think, their ninth or tenth anniversary. First comes marriage, then learning how to love each other. Now let's add on to that another cultural challenge for these women. Bearing children in the first century was, quote, a duty to provide the heir for the estate. In other words, children were considered the duty of a wife to bear and raise on her own, whether she wanted to or not, with little help, by the way, from the husband. She could easily resent him and transfer it to them. So be a friend and affectionate toward your children. So these wives, these mothers are getting saved by faith in Christ. You know, they're introduced to a new family called the church. This is a fellowship of redeemed sinners. They hear about new relationships and new priorities. The Christian home is something totally new to them. And these women are going to need to be trained to a new way of thinking. And Paul is not saying, okay, now that you've accepted Christ, here's how you can get out of all of that. No, he's saying, here's how you go back into all of that. Here's how you act as you return to that. Here's your new way of thinking. And they would have to be trained to think entirely differently. And i got to tell you, men and women, as you already know, young wives and mothers, young women, have to be trained entirely differently in this generation as well. In fact, I I saw this news report, ABC News, carried the story of a law firm that created a billboard in the Chicago area. It was kind of recruiting for the attorney's firm of wealthy Gold Coast clientele and and, and and on either side of the words, 
In the middle was a scantily clad man and a woman. And the billboard read, and I quote, Life's short, dash, get a divorce. Within a week, the city required that they pull it down, take the ad off. They cited technical problems. (laughs) Enough people actually complained, I guess. But the legal firm defended it, and this is what struck me. Here's their quote. We find the advertisement refreshingly honest and insightful. It's true. People are unhappy, and there are plenty of options out there. Get a divorce and get on with your life. End quote. Now listen, if the primary purpose of marriage is self-fulfillment and self-gratification then that ad does make perfect sense. And it can be praised, you know, it's really perceptive. I mean, if marriage and motherhood is slowing down your party, dump it. You see, Paul is cutting across the cultural mindset. This is a new set of priorities. And it isn't just endure, it is to be affectionate. This is a new set of, of priorities, commands, privileges. And even though these young women were Christians, and Peter will talk about the fact that many of them were married to men who did not receive Christ, which made it even more difficult. They're coming into the church, and I think they're getting a realistic picture of Christianity. Christianity is not some kind of miracle drug you take, and everything is resolved in marriage and motherhood and relationships. We've been peddling that for 50 years. The church has been telling people, come to Jesus, he's going to fix everything in your life. And so they try Jesus, and things get worse. And so they dump him and the church, never having genuinely come to faith for the right reason and to the right person and with the right understanding of the gospel. So they're going to come in and they're going to need Understanding that even though you're a Christian, marriage is still the union of two fallen sinners. And any children born to you or adopted by you, you're going to soon discover they are also fallen sinners. And Paul says to them, train these young mothers to love, present tense, every day. Decision, dedication, daily challenge. And how tough can that be? I I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but mothers have the toughest job in the world, right? I mean, the toughest job. The phrase, a working mother, is redundant. I don't know who came up with that. You are underpaid, undervalued, overworked, often simply taken for granted, right? And all the women said? You made some points, sir, for saying that for your wife, okay? (laughs) When your children are not feeling well or they're hurt or they're sick, and they got to throw up, they don't go to dad, they go to mom. And all the men said, (laughs) amen. Mothers don't get much of a break. In fact, I read just this past week about a mom who wasn't feeling well. Her 15-year-old son came home from school, found her upstairs lying on the bed. He was suddenly seized with genuine concern. He said, Mom, are you sick or something? 
His mother responded somewhat weakly. Well, as a matter of fact, I, I'm not feeling too well. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry about that, Mom. He stood there looking at her for a long time, long pause. And then he said, look, Mom, don't worry at all about dinner. I'm pretty big now, and I'm strong, and I'll be able to carry you downstairs to the stove. (laughs) Poor mom, poor mom. Here's the reality. Paul elaborates on how the husband is to love the wife. He's going to do that in Ephesians. Here he rounds it up by telling the wife how to love her husband and children. And the reality is this. This is a call to these young mothers and wives. It's nothing less than a call to abandon self. Everything they've learned, everything their flesh says, self-promotion, self-actualization, self-centeredness, self-love, you take that and you set that aside for self-sacrifice. One commentator summarized this first pair of commands by saying this, mature, godly love then is not an emotion that wells up. It is a discipline that is worked up and out. Older women, first of all, train young wives and mothers as it relates to their relationships in the family. Second of all, and this is all we'll get to today, provide a model for them as it relates to their reputation in the world. So let's talk about that. The model for the wife's reputation in their world. The second pair appear in verse 5. These younger mothers and wives are to cultivate, that is, they're to be trained to be sensible and pure. And let me say this, by the way, in case you're thinking this sermon is for all the young mothers and wives, I've, I've been given a, you know, whatever, a way out. Just as the qualifications of an elder in Titus chapter 1 were specifically for elders, those who would shepherd the church, they become an excellent standard for any man wanting to pursue a godly lifestyle. In fact, in any church, a very few number of men will serve as elders. In our church, it's about 16, 17 men, and several thousand men attend. In any church, they become qualifications or I should say attributes of godly living for any man. So these attributes here you're seeing for older women, younger women, many of them can become wonderful attributes for those even if if you are not married or you do not have children, if you are a woman of any standing in the church. And I think it has implications obviously for men as well. The first word, in fact, translated here, sensible, is the same word Titus used for older men. He told older men earlier in in verse 2, to be sensible. Now he tells younger women to be sensible. He's going to later tell younger men to be sensible. And later on, he's going to tell all of the church to be sensible. This is the one attribute that everybody's supposed to be. This, This has to do, and I've already dealt with this, so I'll just touch on it. This has to do with balanced thinking that avoids excess. It refers to thinking biblically again and then acting on it. It's as if Paul says, look, the biggest battle we will ever have is between the ears. It's a battle of the mind. Paul also adds the word pure. Teach them. Bring them to their senses as it relates to purity. The word pure translates the idea, in fact, 
the old English word chaste. It's a lost word for our vocabulary. It's a wonderful word, chaste, modest. The word originally referred to ritual cleanliness, uh, but over time it, it shifted into having sexual overtones. She is effectively being commanded here not to live for her body, not to attract attention to her body, to be discreet, you could translate it, to be modest is a word we understand, would be a good translation. Which, by the way, then, and you remember he's speaking to married women, he's, he's basically saying that marriage does not exempt women from either being attracted to other men or attracting other men to themselves. A wedding ring is not a free pass, and well, it's all their problem out there if they're looking at me. See, part of a godly woman's curriculum is being uh, taught that, that she's not only part of a nuclear family, but a larger family, and it is to her glory to be chaste and modest and discreet. To literally develop a reputation for being pure inside and outside. Now Paul knew that these young women would not have had a clue having come in from their culture in Crete where the flaunting of sexual expression and, and freedom on the island prostitution was legal in the first century and everything else was too. And they would come into the church and they would need instruction on how to, how to live and, and act and, and even how to look. And many of these younger women would not have had believing mothers who modeled for them modesty and, and a chaste demeanor. So it would be brand new. And, and Paul is not telling Titus, go tell them. He's telling Titus to tell the older women to tell them. It would be inappropriate for any man to go up and tell a woman she's not dressed modestly. In fact, that woman would probably say, why are you looking? This is what Paul challenges in general, as I can do as a pastor or teacher from this platform. He challenges all of the women in 1 Timothy Chapter 2, I I want all of the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Now, older women come along and say, here's what that means. Here's how you apply that. Let me at least do this today. Let me make an appeal to you, my sisters in Christ on behalf of my brothers and myself. Let me make an appeal to you. In fact, you would be surprised, I know you'd be surprised, if you knew how many men in the church have lamented to me, in fact, the last guy only recently, and then another guy on the platform today, saying if only our sisters in Christ knew how difficult it was at times to come in here and try to focus our thoughts on God while at the same time ending up battling our flesh over the way someone showed up looking like they did. 
So the entire service was for me a tug of war of my attention. And I left church more defeated than when I came in. Let me appeal to you, my sisters, this place of all places, go the extra mile to be discreet and chaste and modest. And men do the same in your own way in the way you treat them, your sisters in Christ. Let me just add this too, since I'm making so many friends. (laughs) Fathers, husbands, let me appeal to you as well to do your brothers and your sisters a great service to offer to your wives and to your daughters your opinion, your advice. You're the one that can. I have two daughters. I can't tell you how many times I've gone with them and they've asked me to, to buy their clothing. I have one who's 24 who wants my opinion. That's, that, that you can do that in a family. Let me appeal to you. Take your blinders off. Wake up to the way your daughters are dressing. Wake up to the way your wives are dressing, especially when you're heading out the door to a public worship service. Provide a little insight. I mean, say to them, oh, wow, wow. I, that's a, you look absolutely stunning in that, but if you go to church like that, the brothers around you are going to have a hard time singing, holy, holy, holy. <laughs> Of all places, this ought to be the place where we encourage each other to focus upward. See, this is a new message on the island of Crete, and it's a new message in any church. For women on this island, for women throughout every generation, getting attention is the name of the game. I mean, you're, 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 you're trained in that, ladies, at a very young age by our world and by our fallen flesh. Paul is basically saying if you want to get attention for the right reason, if you want to make a mark for Christ, if you want to be known for the right thing, make sure it has to do not so much with how you look but with how you live. Now, I want to say this too. We're, we're running out of time. But I, I want to add this. Paul implies in this curriculum a wonderful, freeing implication for younger mothers and wives who were saved by Christ and younger women, older women as well, who come into the church. You see, they came into the church with a past history. And it was anything but pure. They're coming in here, fighting their own battles. And many of them, maybe many of you, are wondering just how deeply does the blood of Christ cleanse me from sin? Paul tells the older women in in this implication here in the command, teach the younger women to be pure. You know what this means? Paul is effectively saying to these younger women, you may not have had a reputation for being pure, but you can now. You can now. The word purity may never have been associated with your past life, but it can be now. You can be known for being pure. No matter what your past, 
So here's this, here's this new principle of holy living. Here, here's a pattern provided by older women. Here's the power provided by obedience and submission to the Holy Spirit. And here's the amazing news to these young women. They may never have lived a pure life, but now they can start living it for Christ. So older women and younger women, here's a portion of your curriculum. You came into the church knowing a lot about fashion. You're here now. You're going to learn a lot about conviction. You came into the church having lived for yourself. You're going to be given instruction on how to live for everyone but yourself. You came into the church living for the approval and pleasure of man. You're going to be retrained So that you begin to have a deeper and deeper longing to live for the approval and pleasure of God. You're going to learn how purity should affect everything about you inside and outside. You're going to be challenged to be sensible, to govern your actions, not by emotions, but convictions. And you're going to begin learning how to serve your children and your husband with the affections of self sacrificing love. Older women, invite the younger women, wives and mothers to watch and learn. This is the life God intended for you. You teach and train. You return them to their senses. You remember the young man, he took his dad's inheritance and he went and he, and he lived in a moral life. He spent his inheritance, came to the end of himself, ends up in a pig pen. And for Jewish young men, that was even more horrible. Eating their husks, caring for them, ceremonially unclean, impure. And at that moment, he came to his what? Senses. Bring them to their senses. This is This is what they intuitively know is right. This is the kind of commitment. These are the kind of priorities and and lifestyle that ultimately allows a, a woman and a man to lean upon the strength of the Holy Spirit and to live for the glory of God. This, this is how to love. This is how to live. Father, thank you for the clarity again of your word. Thank you for the courage of Paul, Titus, of elders, shepherds, older men, especially older women, and younger women to submit to this kind of new thinking, new living, training for even new emotions, new demeanors new reputations. We thank you that we can say because of your word that your blood has cleansed us from every stain. And you want us to live in light of that. Ultimately, as Paul will address us at a later time so that the word of God will not be hindered but magnified especially in our culture today, which you, God, by design, planned for us to live and work and love and relate, to be seen and heard. In this hour, you have called us. 
We individually are one little light, but as our world grows dark, help us to shine. And as a church, a collection, may we shine brightly as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving, I'll be a God's people said, Amen. Amen.